You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 25th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi-ho, everyone. Hello. Hi-ho. Hi-ho. That's what Kermit the Frog used to say, remember? And the dwarves, right? Yeah, that was Well, they used to sing that more than say it, but you're right. Frogs and dwarves. Frogs and dwarves. together. Total chaos. (laughs) Sounds like a D20 game. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Rebecca. What's important about today? Yeah. I would love to tell you what's important about today. What's important about today is that this is the anniversary, July 28th, the anniversary of the discovery of Kennewick Man. July 28th, 1996, the remains of Kennewick Man were found in Washington State. And people probably best know Kennewick Man due to the controversy surrounding the ownership of the bones, uh, because the local Native American tribe, the Umatia, requested custody of the remains, and they wanted to bury them according to their tribal traditions. And scientists sued the U.S. in order to have the ability to perform tests on the bones first. And they won because the judge found that uh, the Umatia Umatia did not have a cultural tradition that connected in any way with the bones, which were suspected to be quite old. And sure enough, when tests were performed, they were found to be probably about 9,000 years old. And because of Kennewick Man, researchers figured out a good deal about uh, it's a complex issue <laughs> because uh, we don't know much about the spread of early American people. You know, we know a lot, but there's a lot of puzzle pieces to put together. Kennewick Man added a new puzzle piece that was quite interesting for a lot of researchers to figure out. And there's there's been a lot of debate about what uh, where Kennewick Man came from and who Kennewick Man's possible descendants were and all of that good stuff. So that's the that's the shortest I can I can sum all that up for you. But there's some other details I think are worth mentioning. So yeah, it's over 8,000 years old. Could be as much as 9,000. But what was immediately interesting about that was that the skull does not have typical Native American uh, features. It, it looks Caucasian, although it also has some other features that are don't quite fit into anything. So this implies that something very different about the usual, you know, story that that has been unfolding about the popul- population of the Americas. As you said, this is a new puzzle piece, which really calls into question a lot of what we thought we knew about who came over when, and it's partly for that reason that you know, no modern Native American tribe. It's the burden of proof is on them to establish that this is an ancestor. They can't establish a connection because it's not even Native American uh, in terms of its morphology. The DNA apparently has been equivocal. So another interesting wrinkle to the ownership controversy, in 2005, John McCain introduced an amendment to NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the, the, the law that basically says that Native Americans can say, hey, those bones are our ancestors, you have to give them to us so that we can handle them according to our traditions. The, the amendment would would have said, change the definition of Native American 
from is indigenous to the United States to is or was indigenous to the United States. But that, that uh, bill was never passed. If that change had gone through, then Kennewick man would, ha- would be considered Native American because he was found in the United States. That's all it would take. But then that would raise a whole new batch of issues because at that point, you still have to figure out which tribe gets right. to bury Kennewick man. And, and there's a very good chance that you, you won't be able to find, uh, the tribe. And if you do, there's a very good chance that white people have already wiped them out. Yeah, that was kind of the point of that amendment was that, well, so many of the descendants have been wiped out that it's not really fair to require them to establish a, a continuous connection. So they wanted to loosen the criteria. But, uh, you know, I think it's unfortunate because from a scientific point of view, we want to study the remains of, of humans that we find in North America to piece this puzzle together. And if we don't get the opportunity to do that, we're going to lose a lot of information. Uh, honestly, my opinion is that, especially when you're going back thousands of years, these bones belong to humanity. They are part of our shared history. You know what I mean? The history of our species. And... You know, so I think that, you know, we have the right to have scientists study this to figure out, to f- piece that history together. The, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of, of religion, you know, Native American religion and culture tied up with this. You know, they, they have certain oral traditions. And if they believe that, you know, what the scientists are investigating going, are going against their oral traditions, then they don't like that. You know, so that, that becomes the basis of their opposition. Right. And that was the argument on behalf of the Umatillo was that, their oral history goes back long enough to encompass these uh, remains. Um, and and the government denying that is the government rejecting their religious beliefs. I mean, right now, those remains are held at the Burke Museum at UW, and they're not on display um, because it would be, you know, insulting to the... Potentially, uh, yeah. The, the Native Americans. It's an interesting controversy, and, you know, one we've sort of been following over the years, and it's kind of in limbo now, actually, because it's still owned by the uh, the federal government, specifically the Army Corps of Engineers, and being held you know, by this museum as a neutral party, but not being studied, not being displayed. So it really is still unresolved. And, you know, I, I forgot to mention when I when I mentioned the discovery of the remains is that what makes these remains particularly interesting is how complete they were. Uh, at first blush, it seemed like they were only maybe 100, 200 years old. Uh, it wasn't until they did um, radiocarbon dating that they were able to fix the, the date at around 9,300 years. So, like, they, there were only – there's, like, one, maybe two major bones that were missing, and there, were, there was even, like, a full set of teeth inside the skull. So there's a tremendous amount that they could learn from these remains. We don't have much that's still around from 9,200 years ago. It's, it's yeah. Especially in America. <laughs> well, let's move on to our news items. Uh, we are back from the Amazing Meeting 2012. 2012. Uh, and 2012, 2012. <laughs> He'll never stop. He'll never stop. No, it, it, I will in 2013. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we were all there except for Rebecca. Rebecca did not go to TAM this year because of issues that she had with DJ Grothy. It revolves around a, a discussion had online about harassment policies, really, and many women particularly, and a lot of men, encouraging skeptic conferences to enact anti-harassment policies uh, to help women uh, feel more comfortable at conferences. 
We definitely missed having you there. Uh, of course, you know, the rest of us were there to, you know, attend the dinner and, and do all the things that we agreed to do. Uh, and it still was a great event. Tam is very successful, I thought. Hopefully we can move past this kerfuffle. You know, it's still, if you want to learn more about it, it's been written about to death online and we're still going to be discussing this issue. I didn't want the show itself to, you know, to get dragged down into talking endlessly about this, but, uh, there is definitely a lot. The discussion is very active online still, and we hope to move this forward in a constructive way. So that's all I'm going to say about it further. We also have two uh, conventions coming up. We have Dragon Con. That's Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, Georgia, for those of you who mm-hmm. don't know. Yep, August 31st to September 3rd. The entire SGU will be there. Uh, we will be doing a live show on Saturday night. And I'm, I'm told we have the Crystal Ballroom this year, which is a little bit bigger than the, the other rooms we had last year, which always flows out the door. So hopefully we'll have enough room for everybody. And uh, we will have tables there to, to meet our listeners and sell some swag. And I think we're also going to be recording a private show like we did yes, last year because that was so popular. People really awesome. liked that. That yep. was a lot of fun. That yeah. was, was a lot of fun. fun. Yeah, George and Brian Brushwood were with us. We'll see who attends this year. Hmm. Hmm. We'll see. Mystery guest. And the SGU will be attending in its entirety for the first time PsyCon in Nashville from October 25th to October 28th. Steve and I were there last year, and it yeah. was Wait, awesome. I didn't it know was. that was so close to Halloween. I'm not going. <laughs> Why? There's going to be a Halloween party. There are will be sure? a Halloween party. Are you party. sure? Yes. Yeah, I'm hosting talking it. talking about the costumes. There you well, see. Maybe uh, I'll go oh, now. Bob, the invite's in your email. Yeah. Rebecca hosted it last year. It was a lot of fun. So we will be doing a live show from SciCon on Thursday, October 25th at 7 to 9 p.m. We're basically opening the conference. Mm. Uh, George Robb will be there. He's it's, In the schedule, it just says entertainment with George Robb after our show. I don't know what entertainment he's planning. Mm. And then we're also doing a Skeptic's Guide dinner on Saturday night. Where we will, uh, you can have dinner with the entire cast of the SGU and other, and other well-known skeptics. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be doing some entertainment during the dinner as well. We're still working out the details, but de- definitely something fun will be going on. And you can get tickets to all that at csiconference.org. So there is a proliferation of skeptical conferences in a good mm-hmm. way. You know, I think we're spreading out around the country and around the calendar reasonably well. So there's a lot more choices. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, unfortunately, this isn't a full SGU event, but I just want to throw it out there because it's happening soon. August 3rd through 5th, I'm going to be in Montreal for the Sex and Secularism Conference. And you can learn more about that at humanistconference.ca. For the show that we're doing at DragonCon, let's tell people how they can sign up to uh, have that private show with us. Yeah, you can go to skepticalrobot.com and you'll see an item listed front and center that says SGU private recording. Click on that and you can place your order there. It's $50 a ticket and there's a limit of 30 people. And it'll be Sunday night at 10 o'clock. Yeah, we've done that two times so far. Both times it was a lot of fun, both for us and all the people that came. And so I think we're going to make this a regular thing. Yeah. All right, let's move on to some other news items. We unfortunately do have a sad news item this week. Sally Ride passed away a few days ago. I was crushed. Yeah. I love yeah. her. Sticks. So Sally Ride uh, was the first woman American in space. She rode aboard the uh, space shuttle Challenger in 1983. Uh, that made her a household name, at least in the U.S. Yeah, she actually was a, a strong advocate of science education. You know, she used her fame to promote science. She had 
a website. She has there is a website, SallyRideScience.com. Uh, they produce educational materials like uh, key concepts in science, earth sciences, life sciences, physical sciences. It's it's really good. It's good outreach. It's like trying to supplement the, the very poor public school science education that we give in this country, in my opinion. They also run science camps, including girl-only science camps for girls mm-hmm. in fourth grade and up. Yeah, so she was awesome. I was 13 years old uh, when that happened. It was huge, huge news. And I remember thinking to myself then, it's like, well, why is she the first? Why are we only having women in space now at this point? It seemed like it was such a long time coming that we were kind of late to the game in a sense. Even the Russians sent a woman up into space, you know, 20 years prior. Yeah, 1963, uh, cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova. Yeah. Whoa. Orbited the Earth 48 times in 1963. Uh, yeah, we were, we were late to that, to that party. I remember the, all the headlines were ride, Sally ride, you know, when yep. she went up into space. Yeah. yeah, I was a bit lucky growing up to, because she was such a household name by the time I was cognizant of anything that had never, it never really occurred to me as a kid that like, well, of course, of course women can go to space and of course women can be cool scientists. I really looked up to her, you know, but, it didn't occur to me at the time that she was Especially so she was singular. Yeah, and that she and that she crossed so many boundaries, you know, that she right. she sort of blazed right. that frontier for women. Yeah, she was a physicist. And she mm-hmm. you know, joined the faculty at the University of California, San Diego. A theoretical astrophysicist even. Yeah. That's Holy like crap. That's, that's hardcore. Yeah. That's <laughs> hardcore. My main memory is her curly hair and zero G. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, that's that was that was iconic. That's absolutely. True. Yeah, when I was uh, researching her, I was looking up old pictures and everything, and I saw a few of the pictures from her on the shuttle with her hair just like, you know, floating around and everything, and that was burned into my head. And, you know, the interesting thing that came out uh, after her death is that not only was she the first woman, American woman in space, but she is also the first known gay person in space. She's very tight-lipped about her private life, you know, not... I don't think many people even knew that she was dying of pancreatic cancer. And no. even fewer people knew that she had a long-time lesbian partner. 27 mm-hmm. years they were together. And her partner is also her business partner at Sally Ride Science. And she just didn't see the point in making a big deal out of it. But there are a lot of people now who are looking up to her as a gay icon, too. First, uh, first lesbian in space that we know of. That we know. <laughs> that we. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean. Well, there was the Russian. We didn't. We didn't know she was a lesbian until now. So you know, who knows? Yeah. I like I, the I, fact that I, I didn't know about it. I just heard it right now, and I really just don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it has no impact on what I think of her at all. Like, well, for I, me, yeah. it it makes me even prouder of her because I mean, she overcame so much. Yeah, meanwhile, at the same time, uh, the Boy Scouts of America is embroiled in a bit of a controversy over discriminating against homosexuals. Oh, yeah. And, yep. yeah, this is really going against them. I mean, we're, we're definitely living through a culture change, you know, a, a generational culture change where the, you know, the younger generation, uh, basically doesn't care about sexual orientation. And, you know, just over time, it's, you know, these attitudes are shifting. And I think, you know, the, the Boy Scouts now are getting caught in the middle of it. One, one part, one thing that interested me, interested me about that is that they, uh, they discriminate against atheists and apparently that's okay. But now they're getting slack for discriminating against homosexuals. So. Well, I should mention flat, the Girl slack. Scouts, uh, in, in multiple countries. I'm not sure if it's happened in the U.S. yet, but the Girl Scouts 
uh, in their pledge, they mention God. And in several countries now, they've publicly dropped that in order to be more um, egalitarian, more appealing to a mm-hmm. diversity of girls. And the Girl Scouts are awesome when it comes to science education and encouraging girls to, you know, explore the natural world. So and they and they make good cookies. They make delicious cookies. What's not oh to love gosh. about the Girl Scouts? Don't write in and tell me what's not to love about the Girl Scouts. I don't <laughs> want to know. <laughs> you know. How many pounds I've gained over the years from eating those cookies? <laughs> oh gosh! Right, you know that's what? A, that's so a good, fair complaint. So deadly. I have a, I have a nitpick with the Girl Scouts. Okay, it, we've uh-huh. been noticed. You, we've been they, noticing. They, they rejected you, Jay. Is that- <laughs> Stop. You know, I got over that years ago. We've noticed that your cookie sizes have been shrinking slowly and steadily throughout the years. <laughs> oh, fair uh, point. So stop Chase this. Point, Jay. Chase on you, Girl point. Scouts. Seriously, make them bigger. What are you doing? Like, why? Just I'll pay more. Just Jay, make have you read bigger. the label on those on those cookies? I'll pay more bigger. <laughs> <laughs> we want bigger cookies. <laughs> Did you guys hear about the Boy Scout who had his who had who was an Eagle Scout actually he turned in? He turned in his papers, or or what is it? Is it a badge that they give you? His badge, yeah. The guy, the guy wrote the board and said, you know, I can't in good conscience uh, maintain my relationship with the Boy Scouts, and he he right quit for him. Not the only one. I mean, I think it's starting a trend. They're getting a lot of a lot of badges back in protest over over their over their stance (laughs) on homosexuality. Those guys don't need no stinking badges. (laughs) All right, well, Jay, tell us about the latest. In aura photography. Have you guys ever hear of an aura or a person's aura? Oh yeah. I no. have. And what Indeed. color, what color are yours? What do you think? Well, mine's red. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm purple. Uh, orange here. I've, I've always imagined my movie. aura as like a pale acru. <laughs> oh, Steve. <laughs> actually, Steve, actually, Steve. Steve. <laughs> your auras are all black. You don't have any. And I'm right. going to explain to you. No, why. they're invisible. They're transparent. Well, uh, as many of you know, there there are people that believe that people give off auras that some people claim that they can actually see. And the fact is that humans radiate electromagnetic energy, but this is mostly infrared, and it's a function of our body generating and giving off heat. If we have an aura, it's just heat. Our bodies don't radiate energy in the form of radiation or light from our feelings or thoughts. So you can think about whatever you want and feel whatever you want. There's just no way that anyone is going to be able to or can with today's technology see or read or peer into what's actually going on in your mind and in in your heart if you were going to use that idea. In short, there's no such thing as an aura. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we use something called science to determine that an aura doesn't exist. so if you if we simply just take a quick look at the electromagnetic spectrum, the, where are the I'm auras looking. on where are the auras on that spectrum? You might ask, and of course some answers you might get are well, it's metaphysical. There, the, an aura is being picked up by somebody else, and it doesn't really crisscross with the physical world. And some people say it does or whatever. It's just the typical huge spectrum of answers that you get when you ask these types of questions. Now, Steve, you mentioned in your blog today about people who are either self-deluded or have visual or sensory disorders, and that's an explanation for why they might see an aura. Well, I mean, I think the the uh, standard explanation is that people who believe that they're seeing auras are just self-deluded, uh, just suggestibility. But there, over the years, has been one or another, you know, various speculations about well, maybe they have synesthesia, which you know we discussed actually a paper that 
pretty convincingly argue that that doesn't fit well with the phenomenon. Or maybe there's something else, you know, there's some other visual disturbance that they have, which is, cause it's not that big a deal to, to have this visual illusion of, you know, a halo of light. There, there are drugs that can do that. There, there, if you take a digitalis, for example, if you, uh, too high a dose can make you see auras around any bright light source. But that's all very speculative, and I don't, and I don't think it's a major contributor to the phenomenon of people believing in auras. I think it's mainly just new age belief and suggestibility. People who believe in auras mostly were influenced by the findings of a man named Samen Kurlian. Uh, he was a Russian inventor who, in 39, accidentally discovered that if an object is on a photographic plate, if it's connected to voltage, an image is produced of that voltage stimulating the gas that's emitted from, from objects, especially if there's moisture involved. I know you guys are dying to know, though, why are we talking about this today? Oh, yeah. That's dying. because there's a, there's a new form of aura photography out there, and that's called the Guy Coggins Aura Camera 6000. Bob, can you guess who invented this thing? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Is it Guy Coggins? Yeah. The guy Coggins or camera six thousand. Yeah, I mean that he actually he actually oh. calls it the or camera six thousand. Huh. Very, oh man. Rather cartoonish, wouldn't you say? So China, right? Did the Simpsons like write this guy and no. his camera? The aura photos <laughs> that he takes with his camera have a ten second exposure, and while the picture is being taken, the subject places his hands on these two boxes that capture biofeedback. This device picks up electromagnetic fields that are measured at the Ayurvedic meridians, or otherwise known as complete bullshit points. <laughs> um, these are, I, I was reading about that, and it's really funny when you read the gobbledygook that comes with explanations for things like this. It's like the rivers of energy that flow through your being. You know, it's that type of crap you'll read when you, when you read about the Ayurvedic meridians. So the camera translates this data that came, that came from the person placing their hands on these boxes into one or more colors. It's explained on the website through a patented operation. These parameters are projected as a radiant colorful aura field around the body onto the Polaroid film along with the image of the person. Mm-hmm. So these different traits are assigned to each color. Some of you know about this, right? You have orange is creative and artistic. Green is for strength. That's me. Uh, and healing and teaching. And red That's is fun. for the force of will. Blue violet is mystical and unifying. It's more than enough. There you go, Rebecca. It's more than enough to make anybody happy when you read your own aura because everything is good. They don't say, yeah. "Wow, this particular color means you're, a, you know, an a-hole." You're gonna yeah. die. <laughs> what color is skeptical, Jay? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what, I would. What, what color aura do you have if you don't believe in auras? I think if there, if I were to assign a color to skepticism, it would be silver. Okay. So the the key here is that this is not taking a picture of anything. This is just placing an artificial color onto the photographic film based on some BS interpretation of whatever, the skin conductivity, the biofeedback parameters. It's not actually a picture of anything, <laughs> right? It's just fake. It's, it's not. Yeah, no, his, his imaging is complete BS. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Ra- it's, ra- he even states at some point I was reading that he said he knows that it's not really taking a picture of an aura. He even says it. Yeah, it's, it's almost like simulating what an aura would look like right. and it's just guessing at what color is supposed to be, again, based upon some made up algorithm. You know, the other thing is it's reading 
something very transient. You know, the, the skin conductivity, temperature, whatever, all that stuff. This is not like it's a fixed property. It's going to change right. with your body temperature and, and other physiological parameters. Moisture, so, yes. Yeah, this is, this is about as scientific as a mood ring. Send me a picture of yourself and I'll Photoshop an aura around you and it'll be the same thing. So, Bob, tell us about the first computer model of a living organism. Yeah, this is pretty cool. We are one significant step closer to turning biology into a digital science. Stanford researchers and the J. Craig Venter Institute have, for the first time, used software to simulate an entire organism. The the research team used 128 computers to model the complete life cycle of the bacterium Mycoplasma genitalium. Can anyone guess why they use this specific type of bacteria? Absolutely no pretty. idea. Uh, well, because, because, not time's up, because <laughs> it has the smallest genome of any independent organism. Wow. It has only 525 genes, which is really, really tiny. E. coli, for example, which is probably one of the, the standard research organisms, is hugely comp- complex in comparison. It has 4,288 genes. So this guy's really, really tiny. Now, Mycoplasma genitalium may sound familiar. It was the organism used by Venters Institute in 2009 to synthesize an artificial chromosome. You, you, may, rem- you, may, bleh, you may remember that. He, of course, used it be- because of that very reason, because it was really tiny and relatively easy to do. This is a, a parasitic bacterium that is usually unwanted since it shows up in human respiratory and urogenital tracts as a transmitter of sexually transmitted disease. So uh, you don't really uh, want one of these guys on you. But um, but so why would we even want to, to convert this bacterium into software? Well, there's actually lots of reasons, but primarily it's all about bringing a mountain of data under one roof. For years now, one of the biggest problems in researching the tiniest units of life has not been getting enough data. Actually, using uh, high-throughput studies that we have now, you can you can create libraries of information really, really fast. The problem now is trying to understand all this information kind of as a gestalt, try to get a handle on all this, these mountain, this mountain of information. Technological limitations in the past have forced us into this sort of reductionist approach, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, to understand a gene, you knock it out and see what changes. And this has been incredibly successful and very illuminating, but it does almost nothing to get us the big picture of what's going on. At Stanford bioengineering team lead, Professor Marcus Covert said, many of the issues we're interested in aren't single gene problems. They're the complex result of hundreds or thousands of genes interacting. And to pull this off, the team used their own experiments and the data from more than 900 scientific papers about this organism. These papers examined in detail things like um, all the biological molecular interactions known to take place inside the cell from from birth to death the the key advance that they made i would say was to was to chunk up this data and then make all this data work together and to do this they identified 28 different modules or categories of molecules and their interactions within the cell this includes things like dna and rna and and molecules like metabolites that are that are generated within the cells during metabolism and that these modules then communicated with each other during each time step of the program when it was run so this turned the separate discrete elements into a single unified digital organism. A key fact that I think is really critical and really fascinating is that they ran some experiments that validated this computer model. Uh, they showed that it was able to reproduce independent lab data that examined many different cell functions across many different scales. 
if you could create a model that then matches what you're seeing in reality, I think you're definitely, at the very least, you're onto something pretty, you know, that's pretty accurate. So if you had to extrapolate this to a person, uh, that's a, you know, that's a lot of data. <laughs> that's a tremendous amount. Oh my God. Oh are we yeah. Talking yottabytes. I, I, I wouldn't mean, even. Where, where, I mean, what are we yeah, talking about? No. Let's not get silly. So my usual question at this point is, well, what may the future hold, you know, for this kind of technology? And uh, I, I think that we we could see uh, things like a fully fully designed bacteria or yeast that can mass produce things like pharmaceuticals. I think that's that's kind of a no brainer possibility for this. So we could also see labs that can do thousands of experiments at a time, much faster than we can even imagine doing right now. Um, ultimately, though, this could give us the ability to use uh, CAD or computer-aided design in medicine and bioengineering, something that's never really been done before. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about a different kind of artificial organism that scientists have recently created. Yeah, I'm going to top you, Bob. Nice. Huh. Uh, okay, not not really. Uh... <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that. Take two. Yeah, this is interesting. Kevin Kit Parker is a professor of bioengineering and physics at Harvard. He was interested in growing a heart. How does one grow a heart? And he was inspired by the way that jellyfish pump a muscle in order to move through the water. So he decided to try to create an artificial jellyfish using heart cells, particularly heart cells from a rat. So along with researchers at both Harvard and Caltech, uh, he spent years studying how jellyfish move before they were able to create a jellyfish-like silicone body onto which they printed this pattern of proteins that mimicked the musculature of jellyfish. Next, they grew cool. the heart muscles, the heart muscle cells over the body, and then they dropped it into a container of electrically conducting fluid and then shocked it, which forced the cells to contract and moved the synthetic jellyfish around in the water. So basically, they bioengineered a jellyfish. Uh, I was a little disappointed when I found out that, you know, it, it was being hailed as synthetic life. And, you know, I, I was a bit disappointed that it can't actually reproduce. It can't move on its own. Though apparently the cells did contract slightly before the electricity was applied, which is cool. Uh, but what makes this amazing to me is that this team isn't setting out to perfectly recreate a jellyfish. Instead, they've identified the primary function of a jellyfish, and they thought about a new way to create it. You know, their jellyfish doesn't look exactly like a jellyfish. It is designed to move through the water, though, uh, in the way a jellyfish does, um, but better, basically. Because uh, evolution is this messy process, and it doesn't always result in the perfect tool for the job. Applied to the idea of creating replacement hearts for people, Maybe we don't necessarily need to recreate the human heart as it currently exists. We can instead build a new, more streamlined organ that's better suited for the job. And that seems to be this team's goal. Uh, lead author Jana Nalroth said that tissue engineers currently try to copy a tissue organ, and I quote, based on what they think is important or what they see as the major components without necessarily understanding if those components are relevant to the desired function or without analyzing first how different materials could be used. So as for the jellyfish, they are now working on a simple brain for it so that it can respond to its environment by moving toward light or seeking out food or energy. However, 
I could find no plans currently in place to add any stinging capabilities. Uh-huh. Uh, I have to make a pedantic point here uh, before we get emailed in about it that the term jellyfish is a little out of favor because uh, jellyfish jellies. are not fish. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's anything official, but um, you know, a lot of uh, aquariums, etc., have been using the term jelly or sea jelly rather than jellyfish. But jellyfish is still, I think, an acceptable term. Yeah, I don't think anybody really kind of thinks like, of jellyfish like as fish. I mean, they're quite obviously yeah. different organisms. Yeah. Right, right. And it kind of rolls off the tongue a little well, bit better. Jellyfish. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Jellies. Yeah. Well, like starfish. They're not really called starfish anymore. It's sea stars. Yeah. But really? Yeah. Similar, similar yep. idea. Hmm. I think, you know, saying anything's a fish that lives in the water is, in general... No, it's somewhat <laughs> accurate, right? But you know, there's there's mammals that live in the water too, or whatever. Well, does that mean though uh, that we're gonna have to change the names of catfish because they're not really cats? Yeah. <laughs> but they are fish. <laughs> well, what about Aquaman? Fish, Is Aquaman a fish? Well, no, it's not even no, his no. name. Well, if he was a fish, he'd be called. What Aquafish. about Mermaid? Mermaid Man? Mermaid, mermaid Man? man. <laughs> what is Mermaid Man? <laughs> and Barnacle Boy? Oh my God! Tra- trans <laughs> transgender. <laughs> What? SpongeBob. Oh gosh, I'm sorry I'm not 12. <laughs> <laughs> My 12-year-old Steve, daughter Steve. loves that show. Yes. Steve, did you know that Mermaid Man died? What? The character or the actor who did the voice? Not, Mercury Mercury poisoning? Er, Ernest Ernest Borgnine. Oh, did he really oh. didn't know that? Oh yeah. 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 From local That's how sad. He was supposed from, to be a Dragon Con too, I think. Yeah. All right, Evan, finish up the news for us with uh, an interesting firewalking mishap that happened yeah. recently. Firewalking. This, this is great. People are still doing this. Tony Robbins, you know, self-help guru. You've seen him on TV, his big dumb smile and everything. Well, uh, according to uh, the folks in the headlines last week in San Jose, uh, well, I'll read you the first line of the article. Amid inspirational talk, chanted mantras, and shouts of victory at late-night firewalking event attended by thousands... Uh, came the agonized shrieks from followers whose souls were scorched by the superheated coals, witnesses said. Souls so, of their feet, not... Souls of their feet. Not their well, souls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know that for sure, though. 21 awesome. people were treated for burn injuries after going through the uh, firewalk exercise by which Tony and others claim that if you use mind over matter, you too can walk over fiery hot coals which burn up at temperatures up to 2000 degrees fahrenheit how is that possible well it's an old trick (laughs) is what is what is what it is and uh steve you did a good job in your article uh, about that this week uh, explaining the difference between the various thermal properties of say wood versus metal um and also the difference between thermal conductance uh versus thermal capacity and there is a big big difference yeah, I used iron as an example. Uh, iron has a very high thermal conductance and capacity. It it can transfer energy very quickly, and it has a lot of energy to hold on to. So if you touched a piece of iron at 2,000 degrees, it would uh, cook you very quickly, as opposed to wood, which has very low thermal conductance, and therefore it transfers energy very slowly. So you could touch it for a brief period of time without getting burned. And so, yeah, so the coals get to about 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit or so, but not much of the heat gets transferred to your feet as you're walking, you know, as long as you walk at a relatively brisk pace and also a short distance. Do you remember when Richard Wiseman, two years ago at TAM 9, showed a little video about 
some people who were doing the fire walk, but the fire walk was too long. It wasn't designed at the usual 10 to 15 foot length. This was more like a 25 to 30 foot length. And when you get to about that halfway point, you know, 15, 20 feet, that's it. You have to kind of step off. You can't complete the path because you can only take so much. You know, you and should mention that it wasn't off. just, it wasn't just that the fire walk happened to be too long. It's that Richard purposely made it too long in order to <laughs> embarrass order to them on television. <laughs> it was embarrass the fire walkers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's pure yeah. physics. Yeah, it's just the amount of heat that it can hold, how quickly it can transfer it, uh, and that's it. And, and you know, there is some discussion about maybe the ash can provide a little bit of extra insulation. I guess that that is a, probably a minor player, but I think the major effect is just the, the uh, heat conduct, the thermal conductance of the wood. I'm shocked that that guy's teeth didn't, by the power of their own will, help those people walk on the coals. Do you ever see that guy's grill? <laughs> oh my Tony god. Tony Robbins, yeah. But and see there's there's another point that people bring in a lot and that's um and that's it's called the Leidenfrost effect. It's it's basically people will have their, you know, they'll have their feet be really sweaty or moist and uh and they believe that that will actually create a barrier uh a barrier to the heat. And if at best I think that's a very very minor player and I wouldn't trust I wouldn't trust it just to that effect. If you want to visualize in an example, this is something that we've all seen. Say you've got a hot skittle on the uh, on the burner in your kitchen and you it, it reaches a certain temperature and you throw some water on it and you've got this little bead of water that's kind of skittering around and it kind it lasts a long long time. It lasts much longer than you think it should and that's because of this leaden frost effect where where you have this vapor barrier underneath the water droplet that kind of act, acts as an insulation and it prevents the transfer of heat to the uh, to water droplet and so that it evaporates it away and uh, that you know that might be a very minor player in this uh, but I don't think you need that effect at all to explain no. it. it really was the thermal capacity and the and the conductance of the yeah heat. and some people even pointed out that if your feet are sweaty that the uh, embers might stick to your feet and then yes, you get yes, prolonged and contact and that's really what causes right. the burning and right. but it has nothing to do with risk. thinking about cool moss as you walk over the coals you can think <laughs> right. about burning hot lava and it, the effect <laughs> will be the same. Yeah, or walking on the sun or anything. Do you guys know there's a Firewalking Institute Research and Education uh, Organization? I do called now. F-I-R-E, I FIRE. It, they, it described oh, God. It, How long did it take for them to come up with that? <laughs> Get the, <laughs> Three weeks. Get this, Bob. It's a world-class institute that internationally certifies Firewalk instructors to the highest standard of safety, according to their press release, because they had something, some things to say about this. They said, and I quote, we can examine the odds and consider that 21 out of 6,000 participants who took place in this particular firewalk equates to a 1 in 286 likelihood of receiving a second or third degree burn at this event, which is what happened. And then they say, the lifetime risk of death from riding in a car is 1 in 84, a custom that is seldom given second thought. Uh, hello, apple, orange, uh, <laughs> what the hell? Remember this yeah, time right? you had to walk across oh hot God. coals to like get to school or right. go to the grocery store? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking while reading this article, that there's got to be somebody that gets hired to do these events. Like you don't just put on a fire walking event if you don't know what you're doing. And, and that person that knows what they're doing has to know what the physics are, right? They have to have an idea of like how long it should be at what stage during the fire, you know, how, how burnt into the embers have to be in order for someone to walk on it, right? There, there's definitely, definitely physics behind it. It just makes me think, I bet you a lot of people that, that set these things up actually do know these are the parameters that have to be met in order for people not to burn themselves. Oh, sure. It's a gimmick. It's a shtick to get people to think that whatever the 
psychological easy answers that they're peddling, uh, to quote Lisa Simpson, is uh, is worth something, you know? Yeah, but that, yeah. you know, the, exp- the TV show that we mentioned earlier that Richard Weisman participated in demonstrates clearly that there are plenty of people running these things who are true believers because he took people who run firewalks and he extended the length and they were positive they could still do it and that they just needed to, you know, meditate a bit more and, you know, they make it across. And that's what makes the video funny is that they try it. You know, they start walking across and they're very calm and serene. And then midway, they just suddenly run and jump into the grass, you (laughs) know. So they clearly thought that this was going to work or they wouldn't have done it on camera. So I I suspect that there's just a lot of people who uh, they learn it in terms of, okay, this is the standard length. This is how long you wait before sending people across, you know, and they don't really think that those are hard and fast rules for a reason. I think they just think that that's, well, that's the way it's done, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, Evan, you're also going to get us up to date on who's that noisy. We're a couple of weeks behind, I believe. Yeah, a couple of weeks behind. Uh, so from episode 364, we revealed that the answer to that week's episode was Victor Zamet. Of course, you remember that, everyone. And But we needed to announce who who guessed correctly first. And there were a lot of correct guesses on that one. Good job, everyone, for recognizing that fool Victor Zamet. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Trin O.C. was the first correct guesser. Trin O.C. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to uh, whoever that is. And then, <laughs> from, the, from the last time, from when we left you last, we had a... Uh, well, we're going to play The Last Noisy and let you know who, if anyone, won that one. So, here we go. <laughs> Do you guys remember that? Yeah, that was a good yep. one. Yeah. 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 And what is it? S- several guesses. Well, the two people who were on the right track uh, from the message boards, uh, Shadowsot guessed a baby sloth, kind of on the right track there. Moloch guessed a baby crocodile, also sort of on the right track there, but neither of those guesses were correct. This was a baby human. Oh, wow. Whoa. Kill it. Baby human. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what you type in. When you type in uh, weird noises babies make, you get all sorts of stuff that that comes up, and that (laughs) happened to be one of them. That's a human being. A little tiny baby. Interesting. Very cute, by the way. A healthy one, just making a weird noise? Very healthy one, just making a weird noise. Kind of, you know, I guess it kind of can contract its throat to a certain degree and push through a little bit of air that will create that gurgling, crackling. Weird. Sort of noise. Ah. Kind of like that. Yeah. Interesting. So they were the closest, but not quite right. So uh, I'll take the victory on that one. All righty. What do you got for this week? All right. And now, it's time <laughs> and once now, again. <laughs> After re-redisposing of the monster. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, this one is short. It's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to hear. I think the audience is going to want to play this back a couple of times, but I also predict that there will be at least one correct person guessing for this week's Who's That Noisy. Here we go. In the end, I succeed. That's it. That's all you get. That's all you need. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out next week. That's right. Info at theskepticsguide.org. 
and sguforums.com. Those are the ways to get a hold of us to give us your guess. Good luck to everybody. So we're going to do one email this week. This one comes from Chris Burnham, who writes, You guys have done a great job convincing me that vitamin megadosing is a waste, but what about a multivitamin? Clearly, it would be best if I ate a healthy diet. I should also work out every day, give to charity, volunteer, and learn to play a musical instrument. Life is hard. Mm -hmm. The real question is, what's better, a shitty diet with no vitamins or a shitty diet with a multivitamin? Love the show. Thanks. What do you guys think about that? That's an interesting version of this question. We do get this. People ask about vitamins all the time. I do yeah. think there's a you know a huge disconnect between the information that filters down to the public and, and the actual science. But uh, what would you guys say to this? Well, from what I remember, what we would talk about vitamin is that it's used as supplement for certain deficiencies for people who have certain conditions in which they they cannot or do not get a certain vitamin, and therefore, yes, they do need. Um, a supplement. Uh, but that's only to be sort of, you know, done with the advice of your doctor and as part of, you know, an overall regimen. Um, I, I think just taking a multivitamin for the sake of taking a multivitamin probably doesn't do much for you because if you eat a normal sort sort of diet, you're going to get all the nutrients you need. Yeah, but again, the premise here is what if you don't have a, a healthy diet? What if you have a crappy diet? Well, I think it would have to be pr very crappy, yeah. very, very, you know, more, more than your average cr level of crappiness <laughs> uh, to warrant to warrant a multivitamin, more than you would think. Yeah, so I guess there's it depends is the short answer um, <laughs> on the on what you're saying, Bob. It, just having a an unhealthy diet, you know, either a narrow diet or you know, too much red meat, not enough vegetables, whatever, whatever you consider to be an unhealthy diet. The evidence shows you cannot make up for that with multivitamins. You know, you, you can't have a crappy diet and take a multivitamin and think that you're in any way compensating for your crappy diet. You're not. All the benefits, a lot of the benefits of, of having, you know, a nutritious diet come from having, from eating like, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables and, and not eating the stuff that you shouldn't be eating, like, you know, too much fat or, too much red meat or whatever. So from that point of view, the answer is no. Vitamins do not compensate for a bad diet. Probably because part of what makes a diet unhealthy is that you're getting too much of certain stuff. It's not just that you're not getting enough of the nutrients mm -hmm. that you need. However, if your diet is uh, bad or is just restrictive in a certain way that you actually will become deficient in a vitamin, one or more vitamins, then of course, supplementing to prevent that deficiency will help. It will treat that deficiency. But that should be targeted to whatever your deficiency is. The most common one that I see are, are actually vegetarians. Uh, if you, if you don't know how to have, um, a proper vegetarian diet, it's very uh, common for people to become B12 deficient. So Rebecca, I think you and I, have, you and I have talked about this before. You yeah. can get all the B, you can get B12 if you know what you're doing. But if people just decide without really reading about it or knowing what they're doing, they decide they're just going to eliminate all meat from their diet, and then a couple of years down the road, they're B12 deficient. Right. So they they need a cookbook and B12 supplements, basically. So there are there are absolutely are cases like that, and of course, there's lots of specific conditions where vitamin supplementation is helpful. Uh, folate for pregnant women, for example, is always is a, is a common one. Even if you're not deficient, taking extra folate does seem to reduce the incidence of neural tube defects. But you have to be taking it before you actually know you're pregnant. And by the time you know, all the interesting stuff has already happened. So uh, the short answer is 
vitamins do not compensate for a bad diet, but if it's restrictive or bad in a way that you're deficient, then yes, obviously, then supplements will fix the deficiency. Uh, but for a healthy person with a good diet, there's no benefit taking a multivitamin. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. Item number one. A new study shows that while multitasking a visual task with an audio task, such as driving while talking on the phone, significantly impairs performance, combining two visual tasks had little effect. Item number two, scientists have identified a new syndrome, delayed severe allergic reaction to red meat caused by a tick bite. And item number three, researchers have found a distinct subsystem for smell in the mouse that is likely dedicated to smelling behaviorally important odors such as fear. Bob, go first. Ah. Oh boy, wow. You know, you, you read, you read news items. I don't know where you pull these from. Um, I right, never will. Swear <laughs> if I can help yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know how hard my job would be if you knew where I'm going for my suit news <laughs> items. <laughs> All right. New study shows that while multitasking, a visual task with an audio task impairs performance like we've heard before, but combining two visuals had little effect. Uh, man, you know, I'm just not, I mean, I'm just not buying that. Because, uh, I mean, all the, the studies I've read, you know, not recently, but we've talked about it enough. I, they really didn't distinguish that. And I would think that, um, I would think that if you have two visual tasks, I mean, the, the idea of going back and forth, you know, would kind of be the same as, you know, multitasking at work. You know, you're going from one task to the other, to the other, and it's, and it's just never as good as just sticking with one for a while. Um, hmm. So let's see. We've got a new syndrome here: delayed severe allergic reaction to red meat caused by a tick bite. Damn, I have no, I have no idea what to say about that. I can't think of anything that would any red flags. To re- oh, jeez, I don't know. Um, let's see what the third one is: distinct subsystem for smell in the mouse, dedicated to uh, things like fear. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's possible. When a creature is experiencing fear, there could be some sort of release of something that that would be identifiable and associated and associated with fear i guess two visual tasks had little all right i'm just going to say the uh, the multitasking one um i'm yeah i still think that if even if it's two visual tasks that uh, multitasking uh you there will be some impair impairment going on uh, because of that so yeah i'll say that one's fiction okay rebecca that rem- okay the multitasking item reminds me of something I read ages ago that showed that talking on a cell phone while driving impairs your ability to drive safely much, much more than carrying on a conversation with someone who is in the car with you, which at the time I think was attributed to the fact that you don't have to guess at the other person's emotions and things when they're in the car with you. But you are using your sight, uh, so you know more so than you would on the cell phone. So because of that, that item rings true to me. That uh, audio is more demanding for us than visuals. So 
tentatively, I'm saying that one makes sense. Allergic reaction to red meat caused by a tick bite. I have, I only recently learned that you could have allergic reactions to meat. I didn't realize that was a thing, but I know that that's a thing now. So I'm more likely to believe that <laughs> than I might have previously caused by a tick bite. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can see maybe, you know, you have a certain immune response to a tick bite that might, might also cause an allergy that you didn't have before. So that one makes sense too. The one, the one that's not making sense is the idea that mice have a dedicated area for dedicated subsystem for smelling fear because mostly because behaviorally important odors such as fear. That's what throws me because I don't understand how smelling fear in another animal is important to a mouse at all. Like mice are just scared of everything all the time, right? Like why would they care if the cat that's after them is afraid of something? Suddenly they're going to turn around and charge the cat? No, that's not going to happen. I've never seen that happen. All I've ever seen are mice running for their dear little lives. So I can't see any reason for the mouse to have the ability to detect fear in other animals. So that one, I'm going to say, is the fiction. Okay, Evan? Well, let's have a look. Um, the multitasking one, well, we've spoken quite a few times on the show about multitasking. Um, but specifically, visual task with an audio task. I'm not sure we've necessarily phrased it in a specific context such as this. So um, it's very interesting. Significantly impairs performance combining two visual effects had little effect. Two visual tasks had little effect. Well, driving is a visual task. What else would I be doing while I'm driving visual task? Oh. Texting is a visual task. I'm kind of thinking that, I mean, well, that's other tasks as well, but certainly visuals is the main component of that. Um, hmm, I'm not sure about that one. Um, the second one about the new syndrome, severe, uh, delayed severe allergic reaction to red meat. And the tick bites the carrier. So apparently what's happening here is that the tick bite carries something in its saliva, little tick saliva. It gets into your system through the blood and causes you to have an allergic reaction to red meat. Is there anything? I can't. I'm trying to think of what else to kind of equate this to, but I can't think of an example off the top of my head. So moving on to the last one. Mice that have a distinct subsystem for smell that smells behavioral. Important odors of sphere. Hmm, I'm thinking that that one's of the three. I, I kind of think that that one probably is the most likely to be true. You know, they find out all kinds of cool things about mice. Mice are the classic test animal, but a distinct subsystem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I just that one seems to make a lot of sense to me in a certain way. Um, Rebecca, you were talking about how mice are kind of fearful and skittish of everything. And I think that actually plays into uh, why they may have a subsystem uh, for it that they've detected. So it's between, for me, multitasking or the tick bite and allergy. 
Uh, well, I don't like the two visual tasks having little effect. I don't know about that. I think you really got to keep your eyes on the road is the bottom line. So I'll say that that one's the fiction. Attaboy. I'm sorry, which one? The <laughs> multitasking is the fiction. I'm sorry, I was doing something else. All right, Jay? <laughs> I'm going to go in reverse order. I I absolutely think that the one about the mice smelling fear, being wired to smell fear, sure, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm curious to Seriously? know. Yeah, it just, just, it just well, you know, I don't want to throw out the big pheromone thing. I mean, it's like people throw that word around like, like every, you know, like it explains all, all these different things or whatever. But absolutely, you know, sure, they can smell, you know, like you were talking about the cat is a predator and all that. Sure, why wouldn't they be able to smell it? Smell, you know, things that the animal's putting off or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. The one about the red meat caused by tick bites, the allergy situation. Uh, the only thing about that one I don't like is the word delayed, like a de- delayed severe allergic reaction. Why would it be delayed? It's very strange. I hate ticks and I hate being bitten by ticks and I hate everything to do with them and I think we should try to, to destroy all ticks and bed bugs. But anyway, I don't know about this one. I mean, what do I got to say other than it's weird and I hope that that one's the fiction. But the one that I, I didn't like from the moment I heard it and that's why I went in reverse order is this this whole hoo-ha about uh the combining visual tasks has little effect and all that's that's bs combining visual tasks meaning two different things that you have to visually keep track of at the same time that one is the fiction by far is the fiction thank you okay thank you all right so alone here i can't believe i'm the only like i thought immediately the mouse you are alone jay what about bed ticks what do you feel about them Oh my god, imagine if there were pet ticks. (laughs) Oh my god, no! Dear lord, something new to be scared of. Maybe there are pet ticks, right? right. Alright, so do you all agree that scientists have identified a new syndrome, a delayed severe allergic reaction to red meat caused by a tick bite? You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Uh, Why is it delayed? Why delayed? I don't know, but it's the first one. It's the first delayed anaphylactic or severe allergic reaction that has been identified. Wow. Um, and yeah, this is a, uh, study, really a case series, uh, where they identified a few patients that had the same syndrome. Um, they were all bitten by the Lone Star tick and, uh, had a, uh, an alert. How afterwards. ironic considering the Lone Star Steakhouse. Yeah. So the <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I like that. The the tick has a uh a specific carbohydrate that produces an immune response and then the same carbohydrate is in the the red meat meat derived from mammals and uh so produces a can produce a secondary or an anaphylactic severe allergic reaction. Um, so there's a couple of firsts here. This is the first identified anaphylactic reaction to a non-protein, to a carbohydrate. Uh, it's the first delayed reaction, six to eight hours delay after eating the meat. So like you, you know, you have a steak dinner and then in the middle of the night you start, you wake up and can't breathe. Yikes. Yeah. Ticks and really tri- suck. Triggered by a tick bite. Yeah, it's cool. It's very interesting. I mean, seriously. Uh, imagine how hard it is to, to make that diagnosis. Uh, but they're saying that if you physicians who are in this part of the world, you know, basically in the Southwest, and patients present with an anaphylactic reaction after consuming red meat, you should consider this newly identified syndrome. Very interesting. There's a lot of new, lot of new things in there. Um, let's go back to number one, 
A new study shows that while multitasking, a visual task with an audio task, such as driving while talking on the phone, significantly impairs performance. Combining two visual tasks had little effect. Bob, Jay, and Evan, you all think this one is the fiction. Rebecca, you think this uh, one is science. No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. This is it. <laughs> this one is... I mean, this is it, right? Oh. The fiction. Oh. Sorry, oh. This one is fiction. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I suppose uh. you could have thought that maybe, like, if you were integrating two visual tasks into one sort of meta-visual task, that wouldn't be multitasking, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but no, it, in fact, the study showed in that fact. combining two visual tasks is even worse, has more of a negative effect exactly. on the performance of both tasks <laughs> than audio and, and, yeah, yeah, if you, it, that was, that was the way to go with this thank, one. Thank you. Boo. Um, Come on, it was obvious. Right. The uh, <laughs> yeah, was, wow. they they wow. used eye tracking technology to, and also you know, out um, to see how the the subjects were handling the tasks that they were given, but also just how you know their performance on the tasks. And uh, yeah, when trying to combine two visual tasks, their performance was greatly suffered. The other interesting wrinkle here, though, is that when asked how they did, the people who were trying to the people who were trying to multitask two visual tasks thought that they did better than when trying to multitask a visual and an audio task, even though they did worse. So they had a false sense of security, if you will, with the two visual tasks. So they, they were trying to to model like what what would be worse, talking on a cell phone while driving or texting while driving. And definitely texting while driving is much worse. That's which kind of seem seems Intuitive to me. I mean, you know, you're visually distracted trying to text. Yeah, but and that you're like using your fingers. Yeah, although I don't. That, you're doing. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't think that that's the that's the component though. That is the problem. It's really? just, it is just the distraction. It is the the diminishing of your attention. You have to look away from the road, you know, to to text. Uh, I, I, my, it's you brought up the the previous data, which shows that. It's more distracting to talk on the phone than to talk to somebody who's sitting next to you in the car. And we've brought this up before. You know, there's speculation about why that might be. Does the extra per extra set of eyes compensate for the distraction somewhat? My personal experience is that I find it really hard to talk on a cell phone. Um, in that it takes a certain amount of concentration because the uh, cell phone companies typically give just enough bandwidth so that the that human speech is recognizable, but not a lot more than that. So they're always um, restraining the bandwidth. And I, f- I just find the audio quality, even as phones get better, the audio quality is such that I really have to pay attention to understand what the other person is saying over a cell phone. Yeah. Do you guys find that too? No. Yeah, it's- I guess I don't drive. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. No, I don't agree um, with you. And now we got to use the hands-free devices. They have some cracky, you know, earphone thing. You're not even holding the phone up to your head. It's even harder. What do you mean it's harder? I... It's hard on you. Harder the voice, hear. the sound quality is worse with, with the, the hands-free, you know, no, earbuds. My, my headphones yeah, are I, epic. I, I have Bose headphones. They're awesome. There's, there's you don't, don't need anything else. I have good, I have good set of earbuds. Maybe it might be the quality of the, the microphone at the other end too. So let's go on to number three. Researchers have found a distinct subsystem for smell in the mouse that is likely dedicated to smelling behaviorally important odors such as fear. And that one is, of course, science. Uh, this is an interesting bit of, uh, of neuroscience. So this is a series of experiments that have been done over the last few years, but uh, culminating in a recent study that shows that mice have this cluster of uh, odor-sensitive neurons 
uh, that are distinct from the general olfactory neurons in in the glomeruli. That's you know, part of the nose that senses the smell. You just and, made that up. Um, that they nope they 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 actually go to a different part of the brain. They're to a different track. The same pathway was uh, found to be activated previously by previous research when animals smell things like urine of carnivores, like lion or tiger urine. Um, so the chemicals found in that urine actually will trigger this alternate pathway. So the, the, the last bit that the researchers need to do to close the loop, which is why I said likely, is to show that it's actually plugging into, say, the amygdala, the part of the brain that is responsible for emotions. Um, that's what they suspect. And that would certainly uh, close the loop on the hypothesis about what what purpose this is filling. But all the pieces that, that we have in place so far seem to be pointing in that direction. Uh, Rebecca, the thing about smelling fear, it's not that you're smelling fear in the predator. You're feeling, smelling fear in your fellow mice, right? If the uh-huh. mice next to you is afraid, then you should be afraid as well because they oh. maybe they see something you don't see. I screwed yeah, I that up too. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, it's not just fear, again, it's sort of the, you know, chemicals in carnivore piss or other, other, again, emotionally important. And it also makes sense in that a lot, you know, the, the more we learn about the different parts of the, of the, um, sensory systems, they are divided, uh, often into different streams of information based upon significance. Um, for example, there are different visual streams. We have visual streams for, Things that are alive and things that are not alive. They're processed in different parts of the brain. There's an interesting story behind that too, because it's not, it's not just alive or not alive. It's things that we think are acting with agency versus not acting with agency, which is why, in my opinion, we can relate to cartoon characters. We know that they're not alive, but they're acting as if they are alive. And that means we, our brain processes them as if they're living agents even though they don't have the other characteristics of being an agent, like being three-dimensional. That's, that does not appear to be necessary for your brain to, to in, interpret something as having agency. Did you guys see that? Did, I, did we talk about this, about the, um, the researchers who created this little animation where it's basically like a triangle and a circle and a square moving around? Yeah. No, Do no, you I see that? No. And they ask the subjects what's going on in the story here, and people have a pretty easy time making up, you know, elaborate stories about, okay, well, the, the triangle's the daddy and the daddy's oh, yeah, yeah, threatening yeah, yeah. the, yeah, the child that. and the mother's protecting him. It, it's, it's just shapes. Mm. But because they're moving in a way that they even barely suggest some kind of agency, we just pro- we, were, we happily process it that way and, and imbue agency onto those triangles and squares. So it's just interesting. That's where our, our brain's hardwired. So it makes perfect sense to me that we would have a different stream of olfactory information just for those smells that should trigger an immediate instinctive behavior, like especially a survival behavior. It would go to a different part of the brain. So yeah, interesting. So good work, guys. Blah. Thank you. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Hey. And by guys, you mean males. Yeah. Male. <laughs> this time I mean male. Uh, Rebecca, you have a pretty yeah. good track record when you're by yourself. You tend to yeah. you're better than 50-50. Yeah. I, w- I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was sweating it out here. How about you, Jay? What were you doing? Uh, uh, never mind. <laughs> no, but Evan, Let- you have to learn how to not care. <laughs> yeah, Jay's carefully cultivated that over the years. 
said by the guy who regularly screams when he doesn't get the right answer. You can't prove that. All right, I have a quote. Speaking of screaming, Jay, do you have a quote? Yes, I have a (laughs) quote for you, sir. Steve, I have a quote that was sent in by two different people moments after each other. Like, it was amazing. And I had to go with the person who sent it in first. So, Richard Lane, thank you for sending in the following quote. Homeopaths do not have a physical brain, but merely skull water with the memory of brains. (laughs) That was a quote by a comedian called Robin Ince. Robin Ince! All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining me this week. Uh, This show is going up on Saturday, July 28th, which is my daughter's birthday. She's going to be 13 Aww. years old. Julia's a teenager? Of teenager, yeah. Happy Holy birthday, Julia. Yes, yeah, so I want to say happy birthday to my daughter, Julia. Yay! And, and, well, and but, but Sunday, somebody else is having a birthday that hmm. we all know and love and couldn't be doing any of this without And him. is also a teenager. At, at heart. heart. <laughs> at heart. At heart. At heart. Who's Bob, Jay, any ideas who that might be? No. Hmm? I, I think oh, well, they're I playing dumb important. because aren't all their birthdays like right in a row? Well, Bob was Actually, July 4th. Mine right. is July 29th, the day Jeez. after my daughter's, and Jay is August 11th. That's all right. right after each other. Yeah. Thank so you. We've got a slew of November. Steve, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Well, thank happy you, birthday, Evan. Feliz cumpleaños. <laughs> Have a great one. <laughs> and well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. That was good we already said thank you. All right. Well, then, until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.